Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Heather White is the founder of OneGreenThing.org and the former executive director of the Environmental Working Group, and also previously led the nonprofit partner to Yellowstone National Park. She's one of the leading voices on environmental issues and has been featured on CBS, PBS, ABC, NBC, Fox, and quoted in the Washington Post, New York Times, and The Guardian. And today she's here to chat about her new book, One Green Thing, Discover Your Hidden Power to Help Save the Planet. Heather, welcome. Thank you, Jason. So great to see you. Congrats on the book. And... Look, c- climate change is a very big topic. Yeah. And it means a lot of different things to lots of different people. So I'm curious, how do you think about climate change? How do you define climate change? Let's start there. Great question. Climate change and global warming have now become synonymous, but technically they're different. Climate change refers to changes in weather and in temperature over a long period of time. Global warming, on the other hand, refers to the impact of greenhouse gas emissions and the warming of the earth. And those greenhouse gas emissions are carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, water vapor, as well as methane and chlorofluorocarbons. Those together act as kind of a warming blanket for the earth. And, um, you know, kind of like what you would see in a typical greenhouse, they end up increasing the temperature that we are experiencing and will continue to experience over the next several decades. So global warming is the technically accurate term for what we're all using as climate change now, but that's how I define it and how we define it in the community. But as far as what it means for other people, I think the reality is in the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC that I think a lot of your um, followers and subscribers have heard of, the IPCC just recently in September said that, you know, looking at 14,000 different studies internationally with a panel of 1,400 scientists, that human activity is causing global warming and that scientific evidence is unequivocal. In the way I think about it, it's a little bit of cause and effect. Global warming is causing climate change and climate change manifests itself in the wacky weather that we see, whether it's the hurricanes, whether it's the fires, whether it's the tornadoes, uh, it, that is the effect that is devastating and in the news daily. Absolutely. And that's what we're experiencing. And I think more and more of us have had those personal experiences, whether it was the flooding that we saw on the New York subway last year, whether it's the extreme wildfires that we're seeing in Montana. And wildfires are a natural occurrence here, but the University of Montana, all the fire ecologists there are saying that what we're seeing now is not normal. And it's at a rate of the expansion and the duration and the intensity of the fire and what we haven't seen in at least 2000 years. So all of us, you know, whether it's the drought and you're in the West or whether it's flooding, whether it's more intense hurricanes, we're all starting to have these personal experiences with the extreme weather that you're talking about. And I think that is making more and more people in tune and interested in becoming involved in the climate movement. Well, on that subject, I remember watching some something on television recently where apparently, without getting political, 
both parties for the first time who are, you know, both parties are very divided. Everyone knows that actually we're mostly aligned on climate change for different reasons, <laughs> which I consider to be a good thing. And in terms of, look, I, I think it's very easy and we're going to, we're going to talk about this to fall into the doom scrolling on climate yes, change. It can absolutely. become very depressing, very anxiety inducing, very Definitely. fast. And so before we go to eco anxiety, which is a very big topic and a topic, I think you're a leader on, you know, what's the state of the union? You know, you mentioned that report, you know, what is going well, but you know, what is not going? Like, I think we're doing some, I, I, you mentioned some things that are not going well, but like <laughs> we're doing some things well, you know, that we've we got to give right. ourselves credit. I feel like we've made strides here, but you, you tell me. We have made strides, and I think it's important for us to remain focused on that. The first is the Paris Agreement was a really big deal, that we had international consensus that we needed to take action on climate change, that climate change is real, and that we need to make investments in developing countries to make sure that they can address the inequities that they're going to be experiencing with extreme weather, that we can talk about climate adaptation and make these big investments. So that's really huge. I think the second thing is that we've seen remarkable growth in the renewable energy sector. It's the fastest growing sector in energy and that more and more people understand because they're starting to see the windmills, they're starting to see the solar panels. They know that the solutions are here and that what we need to shift is the political will. And I think the third thing that's going really well although my teenagers may have a different perspective, is the fact that Gen Z and Gen Alpha, these are the younger generations, Gen Z are kids born after 1997. They are stepping up and demanding action. And I think that's very important because we can't have that change without that accountability. So that's those things are going really well. What's not going well is even with the international agreement, we had COP26 in Scotland. And unfortunately, the commitments, the climate financing to help developing um, nations deal with the you know, devastating impacts of climate change, we're not really there yet, and we haven't hit those targets. And then, of course, we all know, well, I'm saying we all know, but most of us who are just following just the basic news, the Build Back Better agenda from President Biden, that has not, we've gotten elements of it passed in part of climate legislation, but we haven't gotten the full package yet that would really set us for the stage for net zero by 2030. So good news and bad news, but I think overall kind of stepping back, Jason, more and more people want to get involved. They know it's an issue. They're worried about the future that their kids, grandkids, or just the young people they love are inheriting and want to be part of it. And I think that's the biggest takeaway I have from, from writing this book. So you mentioned worried about climate change and anxiety can be rooted in a false perception mm -hmm. we might have about a future event, which, right. you know, leads to spiraling and negativity about a future event, which very likely not going to happen. We've all gone there, but, but eco-anxiety is anxiety that's rooted in climate change. It's real. It's very real. It's very scary and, and happening before our, our eyes. And so how do you think about eco-anxiety and how to alleviate eco-anxiety? Well, that, that's exactly why I wrote this book, Jason. It was my kids' eco-anxiety. 
And if you're not experiencing anxiety about the environment, I just encourage you to pay more attention <laughs> because just like you said, it's a natural response that we have to these extreme weather events that we've been experiencing. What happened to me and what happened on my journey to study eco-anxiety, even after 20 years of environmental advocacy and law and policy that I've been doing, was my teenagers. So two years ago, actually it's almost three now, in 2019, my older daughter was a freshman in high school and asked if she could be part of the Greta Thunberg-inspired climate strike. And I said, you know, of course, no problem. I'm an environmentalist. I would love to um, have you participate, but it's supposed to rain. And, you know, we don't have thunderstorms a lot in Montana. You have a heavy backpack and a trumpet. So why don't I pick you up and I'll take you to the climate strike? And Jason, that conversation did not go well with my teenager. She was so upset with me on so many levels. First, you know, I was going to drive her to a climate strike, right? Second, you know, I was worried about her backpack and her trumpet in the rain. But what was I doing about climate action? And the third, you know, we hadn't really talked about it as a family, even though my career and my husband's career is environmental policy and environmental action. And she said to us, what are you doing? you know, this can't all be on our shoulders. You know, we have 10 years to make these huge changes. Mom, you can tell me I should go get a master's of sustainability. Okay, I'm 26 years old, you know, but we've run out of time. And so I realized that I needed to step up my game. And my husband, of course, was super supportive of this. And I wrote this book to help people, first of all, acknowledge eco-anxiety that young people especially are experiencing, but also help people understand that you don't need a PhD to be involved in this movement. You don't need a PhD in anything to be involved in this movement. We need you though. We need your unique talents. We need your strengths and service and everyone has a role to play because even though we didn't cause the situation that we're in, that is mostly been our energy choices from the fossil fuel industry, we are all responsible for the solution. And so the action and what I say in this book is this idea of a daily practice of sustainability, a one green thing each day can help alleviate that anxiety. And more importantly, it can help shift the culture because we need that culture change. And I feel like Mind Body Green is on, you know, on the cusp on, as a vanguard for culture change. We need that culture change in order for these big solutions at the national level and the international level to work. Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think in most people, I would say almost everyone these days acknowledges there's a climate crisis. They want to make a difference. They want to take action. And then they get quickly overwhelmed. Right. Uh, right. Right. <laughs> and, and say, well, I can't make a difference or I, I can't afford a, an electric vehicle or I, or I can't get an electric vehicle these right. days. Even if right. I can afford one, you can't right. get one. And, and it comes down to, to, I think a couple of things. One, what can you take action on? What is that one thing? So you're not overwhelmed. And then two, uh, ROI. And so one of the things that I like to. I really liked about the book, you created these service superpower profiles. So mm -hmm. can you briefly walk us through these service superpower profiles to give people, you know, an idea of how they can ship in immediately? Oh, yes. Thank you so much, Jason. And I think this is a fun part of the book is, again, the issue is so overwhelming. You know, if you're in something completely different, if you're not in the field, but even if you are in the field of sustainability, I think this can be a lot of fun. It's a lot, a lot like Enneagram or Myers-Briggs. But the question is, who are you when you show up in service to the people you love and to your community? So the seven different profiles I have are archetypes. The first is the adventurer. And this person is a hands-on learner. They love getting outside their comfort zone. They love taking people uh, and their friends 
into new places. And it doesn't have to be a literal place, but just new ideas, new concepts. So then I have kind of a seven-day plan for the adventurer to get you started. And then a 21-day plan on doing one green thing each day based on that profile. The other is the beacon. And the beacon, this person is kind of the, the person who's out front they're not afraid to be alone. They're often on the courthouse steps, you know, behind the megaphone, or they're doing the interviews, and they're not afraid just to tell it like it is. Then I have the influencer, and that person is all about people, people, people. That's their energy, and that's how they show up with, with others of sharing information. The other uh, sort of superpower I have is the philanthropist, which isn't like, I know it's a big word, philanthropy and philanthropist. It, you know, it sounds like, wait, I, I don't have, I'm not the monopoly guy with the monocle. So, you know, that doesn't apply to me, but actually it, it just means someone who's a giver. And philanthropists love showing up for others with time, you know, dedicating volunteering time, but also their financial resources and sharing their networks. And then we have the sage, which is someone who's motivated to serve because of a spiritual calling, you know, a spiritual connection to nature, a spiritual connection to the outdoors. And that's really important because that person in the role in climate action can help bri build bridges, right? Let's move in close. That's what Brene Brown says, right? It's hard to hate people close up. Let's move in close. Let's really get to know people. And that sage can really help you with that. Then there's the spark which is really fun because uh, several of my friends who've taken the assessment are excited about it because they're like, I'm not actually an environmentalist. Like, of course I care about the future, <laughs> but I wouldn't consider myself an environmentalist. But the spark, you can be an environmentalist. The idea is this is the person who says, sure, I'm in. If you have a cool opportunity to go see a lecture or a documentary or go to this fundraiser. And without the person who raises their hand and says, I'm in, there's no movement. And then just finally, last but not least, is the wonk, which is what I am. I'm a wonk philanthropist. And that's the person who loves data, graphs, charts, the science of it all. and can really help translate these complex ideas in a way that people can understand. So many objections to, to making change, whether it's eating healthier or helping combat the climate crisis come down to time and money. And so with regards to time, you've got a couple of these in the book, but I'm curious your point of view, like what is one of the easiest things where if you're hardworking family and you really don't, you know, you've got kids, you've, you, you don't have childcare, you're just, you can't find time. What is something for that person who just has a minute or two a day? Like, what are some of those things that they can feel like they're contributing and actually making a difference? That's a great question too, Jason. I think the first is kind of, who are you? How do you show up in service? So if you have your, an idea of that identity, that can help the habit, the sustainability habit stick. You know, Atomic Habits was a great inspiration for me for this book too. And then also what kind of what you're getting at is, is what I call the law of simplicity and consistency, making something really simple so you can stick to it. And then the third is amplifying it. That's a, a law of change too, to share it. So for a super busy family, depending on your interests and depending on your values, one of the things I recommend is menu planning. Wow, that's boring. <laughs> but it really helps with food waste. And a food waste is a big contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. And so that's a quick and easy way for you to be thinking about what meals you're making. It saves you money and is a great way for you to deal with your leftovers and have a plan for your leftovers. So that's super easy and fast. Another thing, and this does count as a one green thing, is spending time in nature with your family. I mean, we're all so stuck on our devices, just going for a short walk. And I know you recently you know, had a podcast about the, the power of walking, walking together as a family and just being mindful. 
Now, will that solve the climate crisis, menu planning, and going for a walk? Of course not. But it can bring more clarity to your day. It can make you feel better about how you're contributing to change. And it can inspire other people to take action. So those are just two simple ideas. Well, I specifically love food ways because I believe it's in the top five in it terms is. of contributors. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so like I'll segue to ROI, but huge return on investment. And in terms of investment, there is no investment. If you actually take a serious look at, at food waste, you will probably you have to spend a little time, you know, planning the menu and really taking inventory of how much food you need, but you will end up buying and consuming less food. Yes. So you will yes. save money. Mm -hmm. and, and this is top five. Like right. everyone, you know, Paul Hawkins said this at Revitalize. Did, I know, yeah. you know this. It's like Absolutely. easy. Everyone thinks like electric vehicles are amazing. Right. And if you can afford one, amazing. Or you can get one these days, amazing. But it's, it's actually not one of the top five. Right, right, right. And so going deeper on ROI, you know, there is this film, I'm sure many of our listeners have seen it on Netflix, Seaspiracy, mm -hmm. that shined a light on fishing nets and straws. And there was this huge campaign about straws and amazing results. I feel like straws just kind of disappeared overnight. However, in this documentary, they said that straws only accounted for point point zero three percent of plastic pollution in oceans. And they made the case that the bigger problem in oceans were these plastic fishing nets were being left. And that was the real problem. And so I said, wow, we created this great public campaign that addresses 0.03% of the problem. What? Uh, it would have, would have been really great if we would have focused all of our efforts on a bigger problem. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, wow. <laughs> So how, how do you think about return on investment and, and focusing on the right things? I think that's something that everyone wants to ask. So I have lots to say on that. I think first with respect to the film, I mean, the film was really about the fishing industry and how important it is for us to think about having plant-based diets. And plant-based diets, of course, is also a great opportunity for us to live healthier, live greener, and make an impact on climate. But what I was surprised about is that that there wasn't as much a focus on the oil and gas industry, the fossil fuel industry manufactures plastic. The fishing nets are made of plastic. The issue and the focus and the target needs to be on our addiction to fossil fuels. And we know that big oil is actually doubling down on plastic production because they know eventually, although who knows what the impact of the crisis in Ukraine is going to mean for you know oil and gas production but even the companies know of course it's a finite resource and they have to figure out and that renewables are, are growing exponentially around the world they are doubling down on plastics so plastics is the new oil and fishing nets are made of plastic so we need to make sure that we're keeping our eyes on you know where the challenges are and where the actors we need to be focusing on are but this question of return on investment the challenge we have is that it's always changing, right? And so one of the things I try to say to folks is make the best decisions you can. Your daily practice isn't about your carbon footprint. And I know that that's pretty controversial, but I'm just saying like Jason and Heather's individual carbon footprint. And if we focus on that individually, it's not going to motivate us because it's such a small dent even together. But our daily practice, our skipping the straw, 
sends a signal to those companies that are have the straw. And in Montana, there's still a lot of straws. So they're not, you know, they're still there that we don't have that value as a customer. And that is that cultural impact is really important because the math is so hard and the ROI, depending on how you slice and dice it, is really hard to navigate as a consumer. So one of the things I'm trying to do is just that intention that intention and that practice of sustainability, that one green thing is that cultural driver that we need for these big policy solutions to work. So I think that question people always have, what is the ROI? And you know, I think we just need to stay focused on, we need to end our addiction to fossil fuels, support renewable energy and do what we can. And on that subject and stopping our addiction to fossil fuels, and this is controversial, I'm curious your yeah. take. There are a lot of very smart people who are environmentalists who also think we should take a hard look at nuclear energy. Right. Oh, this is so, so Jason, you know, my dad is a, a nuclear engineer. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I think, you know, France is dealing with this right now because of Russian natural gas. You know, they have doubled down. Germany says, no, thank you. I personally, because I've worked um, for the Department of Energy in the nuclear waste development um, and department, I know that there's a huge, huge challenge. We still don't have the technology for nuclear energy. In my personal viewpoint, much to my dad's chagrin, is that it's not the answer for us. I think that one of the things I encourage people to do in the book is, you know, find out what you're interested in. If you're a wonk, this is a great thing for you to dig into. Like, what's your personal opinion on nuclear energy? Where do you think it can take us? I think we're not there yet because of the the waste issues that we're dealing with. That said, you know, France has made a much different decision. And now Germany's buying energy from France because they don't have the nuclear energy. And I think it's one of those things where NIMBY, you know, the famous NIMBY, yeah. not in my backyard. Every, even people raise their hand and say, you know what? I think we should explore this. Oh, not near me. Exactly. <laughs> I don't want any leaking, you know, storage tanks in my backyard. Exactly. And of course, many of those are on, on, you know, reservations or in areas that, you know, are BIPOC communities or underserved communities too. So, you know, there's a lot of layers to peel back. And I think what happens is sometimes when we have conversations like this, well, what about nuclear? And it's not clear, you know, what the, the answer is. Some people just kind of throw up their hands. I'm like, okay, I got to move on. So this is right. where I try to say, please don't get overwhelmed just focus on this practice, get, you know, find out what is exciting to you, how you want to contribute and whether you are a nuclear engineer or a solar energy engineer, or you know, you're really focused on hydro, which also has lots of challenges too. You do you, <laughs> but we need you is kind of my, is kind of my philosophy. So you mentioned eating a more plant-based diet. I think everyone agrees with that. Sure food waste. I think everyone agrees with that. And then with regards to food, which is a big bucket and a huge opportunity in terms of ROI, one of the areas that a lot of people find to be particularly exciting, including me, regenerative agriculture. Oh, so, yes. And I don't think we talk about it enough. So can you shine a light on regenerative agriculture and the opportunity there? Yeah, that's such a great question. I talked uh, about re regenerative agriculture in the book and how I think for a lot of us, we all, many of us, many folks who are mind, body, green people, you know, buy organics, but we don't necessarily realize that 1% of U.S. land is an organic production. We just think it's actually less than 1%. We think it's a lot more than that. A lot of reasons, a lot of our farm policy is creating barriers for that, but obviously the market is you know tremendously growing. But regenerative ag is a way for us. It doesn't necessarily, you can't be organic and regenerative, but it doesn't have to fit that definition. But the idea is that we can have a big focus on soil and soil as a carbon sink and focus on soil health. And often that comes from raising animals 
and um, agroforestry together in a very sustainable way with this emphasis on soil health, health. And understanding too that, for example, a lot of animal agriculture, the microbes from the animals, depending on how they're raised, can make the soil even healthier. So we're focusing on the organic matter. We're also doing things like making sure we have appropriate cover crops, no-till farming. There's all kinds of other kind of soil health initiatives that can make a big difference. And I, I highly recommend the doc documentary, The Biggest Little Farm, if you've seen that, which is a neat personal story of how regenerative agriculture can, can show what a positive vision of the future can be, Jason. And I think that's something we sometimes lose sight of in the environmental community because we're so focused on the harms. We forget about the opportunities in regenerative ag. I mean, the Rodale Institute says that, that they think that with the right policies in place, by using healthy soil as a carbon sink, we can reduce the annual emissions of carbon dioxide that we have in the United States. I mean, it's really exciting. It is. And, you know, at the highest level, I think what's so attractive is for maintaining Mother Nature's ecosystems. Yes. Yes. And that is at the heart of regenerative ag. And I think when, when you start to play around it a little too much, and try to disrupt ecosystems in various ways, we run into a lot of trouble and there are a lot of unintended consequences. And so one, it really takes the ecosystem into consideration. Two, I think, you know, the, the answer isn't, look, plant-based is, is definitely the way to go. No one will argue that, but I, I don't believe the answer is no meat at all. There's a right. better way, there's a better way to do it. Mm -hmm. And eliminating animals from the ecosystem is just not, I, I think, productive, but there's a way to do it where you get uh, better quality meat, more nutritious meat, and you're doing well for the environment. And it's, I think, I think no one will disagree with the fact that factory farming is awful. Right. Uh, right. And so it, it is a better model. And the answer is not, look, there are a lot of people who, who love the, the fake meat, but that is not alone. That is not the solution that can help. Right. And great mm -hmm. for people who don't eat meat for ethical reasons, but it is not the solution. I agree 100%. And I think we can also see that farmers are excited about it. I, I talk about this in the book and the importance of understanding that the costs of conventional ag, the pesticides, the herbicides that you use, the issues that we've seen, and all of the upfront investment that has to happen with a lot of the monocropping. So this idea of creating incentives for regener regenerative agriculture and this idea of nature-based solutions, I think is something that we should talk more, of, more about in the environmental community and people can get very excited about. Yeah, it's cool. You know, we're, we're seeing Fortune 500 companies embrace it. General Mills yes. is trying to get behind it. It's Absolutely. exciting. It's like there, there's, yeah. and I think the consumers vote with their dollars and then corporations react and, and we're seeing a movement there. I think it's early days, but it's exciting. It is exciting. And that's the importance of focusing on that positive vision, like what we can actually build together and why we need everybody involved. Mm -hmm. And something, you know, Paul Hawken who, who our, our mutual friend has talked about yeah. the, the way to get people to activate them. It's to provide action. It's to provide hope. It's to provide jobs. It's not the, the doom and gloom, mm -mm. <laughs> you know, that, that tends to be demotivating. If I'm, uh, you know, if I'm in the middle of the country, I'm not really affected by this thing. I'm more, and I'm working my ass off to make ends meet and support my family. And I hear this over here, I'm just going to tune you out. 
And I think we need to think about the message. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's important, but I think that's we've got to tell it like it is because the reality is over the next couple of years, all of us, I mean, all of us are going yeah. to have experience with extreme weather in a way that we never anticipated yet. I mean, just the evacuations that we saw, you know, San Francisco's skies turning that day glow orange. You know, we're all going to have these experiences and many of us have. So we need to tell it like it is, but we've done that. <laughs> now we need to talk about what's possible. What we, yes. you know, that this, this, and that's what I'm excited about. I love Paul's book, Regeneration. I have it on my, um, right on my bookshelf. It's a tremendous resource too. It's so exciting. And what I'm trying to do with One Green Thing is try to break that down into how you as an individual can do it. Because I yes. think some of the times we, people get, you know, people are afraid sometimes to start because they're afraid of being judged in sustainability. And I think that's an important part of the book too, is that it's not about perfection. It's about progress. It's all of us taking a step each day and the way that really works for us with our unique talents. You know, if you're great at communicating, if you're an influencer, there's all kinds of wonderful ways that you can share the latest news about what's going on, your most the, the solution you're most excited about. You don't have to be the environmental scientist. You don't have to be a nerd like me to be part of this solution. And I think we just need to welcome as many people as possible in this hopeful vision, vision of the future. I love that. I love that. And so Many of us are spending way too much time in our homes, although I think that's changing. We're coming out yes. of COVID, I'm an optimist. Yes. But how should we think about our homes? So like in terms of bigger improvements, like solar panels to smaller home improvements, like light bulbs, water, let's just like focus on the home since we're all spending way too much time at home. Oh, that's a, that's, that's another great question. Um, Every little bit counts, but try not to get overwhelmed because that can be anxiety producing too. Like, oh my gosh, you know, I say in the book and it's true, I don't own a hybrid, you know, and I don't, I live in Montana, have a Subaru. I can still, my next car will be hybrid, but there's a lot of barriers as you mentioned to that. So this, again, this idea of being judged, but yes, use the LED light bulbs. Focus on um, weatherization. It's not that exciting, but it really does make a huge difference in your energy bills. Get to know your utility. A lot of people, our power is just magic for us. You know, we know we need to plug up our laptop and our phone, but how is it made? Where does it come from? You can call and ask what the renewable energy portfolio is of your utility provider. Solar panels. So there's all kinds of great financing out there for solar panels. It's still a significant investment for a lot of people. So if you're not ready to, to make that big leap, there's also opportunities for you to be part of what are called community gardens, solar community gardens, and more and more communities and power companies are allowing that where there's actually like a field with solar panels where you can get part of your um, energy from there. So there's all kinds of interesting financing options for that. But one of the things you can also do is make a switch and there's many providers that do that. And what they do is that they basically, for every every megawatt of power that comes into your house, you can buy a renewable energy certificate to kind of offset that. So you know that your power is coming from a different source, even though technically a lot of it, for example, in Montana comes from coal. So there's all kinds of opportunities and I break it down step-by-step step in the book about how you can take action. But, but make the changes where you can and that mindfulness does add up over time. So on the subject of home and, and look, fear is often very motivating, especially when it comes to <laughs> toxins in our home, Un yes, unknowing yes. toxins, unknowing sneaky toxins in our homes. So on that subject, what are some of those sneaky toxins that are living in our homes and that we're really not aware of? 
So a couple things come to mind. The first, you know, I'm going to say personal care products. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, I think for a lot of mind body green listeners, they understand the importance of clean personal care products and clean cosmetics, but there are a lot of toxic chemicals still because we don't have the regulations in place and the laws in place. The, um, the safe cosmetic, well, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act, the section that deals with cosmetics, hasn't been updated since 1938. Let me have to say that again, since 1938. So there's huge need to really be mindful of the personal care products you're putting into your home. A lot of um, them have hormone disruptors, for example, and toxic chemicals. The other thing, and this is uh, a report that came out from the Rocky Mountain Institute, gas stoves are contributor, the methane that's released there are contributor to um, greenhouse gases. There's also, you know, you need to be careful about how much of the emissions that are coming from your gas stove might be going into your house. So just make sure you're using that fan if you have an exhaust fan and think about having a, an induction stove when you make your next upgrade. But see, that's a huge purchase too. So that's, I think we're consumers, again, sure. we're not responsible for it. We kind of do our best, but then you're like, oh man, I have to deal with the gas stove now. I just dealt, you know, I dealt with the lead paint here. I dealt with this here. It, it can become overwhelming. So just do your best and do it every day. <laughs> so agreed, agreed. So the, the, the book is filled with, with so much great research. I'm curious, while writing the book, was there a piece of research or a study or a story that really jumped out at you? Uh, yes. Yeah, so two things. One is a study that came out last September of 10,000 young people ages 16 through 25. And in this survey, there were 47% of those respondents said that climate anxiety interfered with their daily life. And one out of four did not want to have children because they're so worried about the future. And that study made me realize that the book was very important, that we need to acknowledge eco-anxiety. We need to create a path forward. Obviously, if it's interfering with your daily life, you need a mental health professional. But for those of us who have this background eco-anxiety, how we can create our sp create space to talk about it, but also create space for kids to share how they feel about the future and for us to commit to them that we're going to work with them. They're not alone and we're going to create a regenerative, hopeful, greener, healthier, just future. So that's the first thing. And I think the second thing is as I write about the book uh, and I was, as I was writing and talking to people about writing the book and interviewing folks, I was surprised to hear how many people are afraid to take that first step or don't even consider themselves an environmentalist, even though I would. And so I would say if you care about the future, you are an environmentalist. <laughs> but how you show up in this movement and how you show up in this space is different for everyone based on your strengths and based on your talents. And that the, the reality is we need everyone. We need you. I love it. Again, I, I think this topic can go sideways and south and, and gloomy very quickly. Yes. But <laughs> we're optimists here. Leave us with some hope. What are you excited about? You know, I'm excited about the youth movement. I really am. It's, it is a global movement of young people stepping up. And yes, there's been a lot about Greta Thunberg and her fun. You know, she's also very funny, blah, 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 is what she said. Our house is on fire, but she's not doing gloom. They're not doom and gloom. They are a force. They're a force in the workplace too, which is a whole nother conversation. A lot of my work on Gen Z um, and Gen Alpha shows how different they are in the workplace, but that's what's going well. 
is that they are ready. They're ready to take action. They know what's possible. They're excited about the positive vision for the future. They just need our help. And we need to create space. We need to share the mic to let them be heard. And one of the things I've heard, so, so the hope is the future of the young people, but we need to make sure that we're partnering with them. And I, I, in the book, I call it Think Beyond Your Age. We need to have intergenerational partnership. We need to create spaces for them to be heard. And I'll just leave you with this, Jason. One of my dear friends was like, look, Heather, of course, your kids have eco-anxiety. You know, you're an environmentalist, right? This is all you talk about and your husband deals with grizzly bears. I mean, come on. But I asked her, talk about it at dinner with your kids. And her sons, like one of them had just put the fork, put his fork down and like looked at his parents and said, I think about climate change every single day. We just don't talk about it as a family. And I think that's an important message for folks about our young people. I talk about this in the book, The Eco-Anxiety Trifecta, the social media they're, they're sharing. It's not about like Jason and Heather went to this cool party. You know, there's a little bit of that. But it's mostly, did you see this reporting from the Ukraine? Did you see this article about this natural disaster that happened unfolding in this area of the world? They are sharing a lot of the pain in the world. So it's important for us to make sure that we're giving them hope too, that they know that they're being heard and that we are focused on solutions too. Amen. Heather, thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. What a pleasure. So great to see you and be with you. Thank you. Thank you.